So we're in December, finally. Uh, from what I've been told, we are officially four days away from being allowed to play and listen to Christmas songs. <laughs> Apparently, we have to wait until December 5th, which explains why my house is the only one with a Christmas tree already, like in my whole street. And, and I don't know where you stand in this, in this whole Christmas controversy of when you're allowed to start listening to Christmas song, but I've been listening since mid-October, so <laughs> that's where I stand on that. So when, when we talk about uh, Christmas, if we put aside all the presents and the family reunions and the carols and, and everything, uh, we, we usually say that it's a, it's a period of joy. And this theme of joy is the one that we're going to work with uh, for the next four weeks. And the way we divided this is that the series on joy is going to be uh, it's going to consist of four parts. Today we're going to talk about Jesus' joy. The next week will be joy and suffering. The following week will be full joy. And then we're going to finish with Christmas joy. So, for me, uh, I had to talk about Jesus' joy. And when Matt told me it was Jesus' joy, uh, the first thought I had was like, well, what does that mean? Is that like... Is Jesus like an adjective? It's like, what do you have? Do you have joy? I'm like, no, I have Jesus' joy. <laughs> but no, th then I asked him, like, oh, is that like the joy Jesus had? Then he's like, yeah, that's the joy Jesus had. And I was like, oh, okay, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was the feeling I got. And then I, I started thinking, because I, I was raised going to church, so I know the book fairly well. And it's what I study, it's what I do. And uh, the first thing that came into my mind was like, I don't remember a passage where, I, where the author says, and Jesus laughed, or like, and Jesus smiled. I remember, and Jesus cried. And I remember him exorcising demons, and I remember him healing people, but I never remember him smiling or laughing or, or, or displaying joy. And then I thought, oh, is this going to be a tricky one for me to do? So then I did what, what we naturally do when we are researching a topic. I went on Google. <laughs> and I put Jesus. And then I clicked on images to see how people think about Jesus. And uh, out of all the pictures that I saw, because I wanted to see like, you know, the, the famous paintings, uh, how Jesus is portrayed. And, and, and there were like two themes that were more or less predominant. And usually Jesus is portrayed as someone very serious. So the painting is usually him like very serious, just staring at you with his hand like this. Or, or this, I don't know what's up with the hand. <laughs> there must be some explanation that I don't know. So the first is serious Jesus with a hand. The second one is Jesus with a Mona Lisa smile. Do you know the Mona Lisa smile? It, it's, 
he's like serious, but he's like smiling maybe a little bit. And then you look at the picture like, is he smiling? Is he not smiling? Is he happy? Is he not happy? I don't know. So, so at that point, I was like, oh, maybe I'm in trouble with a message. So what I did was like, okay, Jesus, New Testament. New Testament was written in Greek. What is the Greek word for joy? So the Greek word for joy is hara. So I said, okay, so I am going to start, look at the whole New Testament and see how many times the word hara appears. Now I have a program that does this. I didn't actually <laughs> read through. So I enter into the program and hara appears 59 times in the New Testament. So that gave me a little bit of hope. I was like, oh, okay, so I have a lot of material to work with. Like 59 times the word appears. So my next step, so, and this is going to be the outline of my sermon, it's like my thought process through the whole thing. So my next step was like, okay, now I need to see when hara is attributed to Jesus. When it's like, hara is explicitly about Jesus. So I did the search in my program again, and out of the 59 times, Three were about Jesus. So for me, it was like, ah, it would be really nice if it was like, out of the 59, 50 times it's, it's about Jesus, so it's all about joy. But no, it was three times. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm in trouble again, because it's only three times. And then I decided to look into the first appearance of Hara with Jesus. So I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. And just so you know, before we arrive to chapter 12 in the letter, in chapter 11, you have this whole discussion, not discussion, it's more of like a description of faith, the faith that Abraham had and the faith that Moses had and the faith that the people of Israel had when they crossed the Red Sea. So it, it has all this context of faith uh, being worked. And then we get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we're only going to read the first, the second verse, but I'm going to start with the first one. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here... In the passage of Hebrews 12, uh, we see Jesus' joy in the context of the cross. Now, for us, it might be something easy to see, because if you ask anyone today, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a cross? And people will just say, oh, it's hope. It's love, it's self-sacrifice to 
for others. It's, it might be it's religion, so it might be good, it might be bad, the reactions. And you will see people wearing crosses around their necks, and you will see crosses on tops of churches and in paintings and so forth. But I think it will be important for us to, to think about the word cross uh, in a first century context. If you were to ask someone in the first century, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of cross? They would probably say, I think, it is the most vile instrument humanity was ever able to conceive to punish someone. Because it was the most violent and prolonged way that the empire found to punish uh, people who were guilty of committing crimes. And so in that context, I look at how Jesus is looking at joy, he's experiencing joy as he's about to go to the cross. So these two things seem to, for me to be like very antagonistic. I'm like, so he's experiencing joy, and at the same time, he's about to endure one of the most horrific things that the empire could conceive. And my question is, how does this work? How can he have joy uh, looking at the cross? Now, I'm not going to go too much into the topic of joy and suffering, because Luda will do that for us next week. But that got me thinking, I'm like, mm, that's interesting. He's going to the cross and he, he's, he's experiencing joy, a joy that is set before him. So he's going to go through the cross because of a joy that is before him. So I thought that was very interesting. So then I went to the second uh, appearance of joy that is linked to Jesus. And the second one that I found is in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15. So I would like to ask you to open your Bibles to John, chapter 15. Now, John is a very interesting Gospel, if you compare John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you look at Matthew, how Matthew starts the Gospel, it's with a big genealogy, starting with Abraham, and then he goes all the way until he reaches Jesus. So Abraham goes as far, uh, Matthew goes as far as Abraham. And then he gets into the whole story of Jesus and he describes Jesus' ministry uh, here on earth. If you look at Mark and Luke, they both start with John the Baptist. So he begins with John the Baptist and his ministry there, and then Jesus arriving. And then Luke will later do a whole genealogy where he will go back to Adam. So you have Matthew who goes back to Abraham. You have Mark who starts with John the Baptist. And you have Luke who starts with John the Baptist and later he will go back to Adam. But John, he starts in eternity past. And he says, in the beginning was the word. So when you first hear this... You, you think, okay, this is going to be very different because how is he going to go from eternity past and describe the whole, Jesus' whole life and ministry here? And he begins there 
and he describes Jesus' whole ministry. And, and like any story, it's a bit fast-paced because he's describing different events in Jesus' life. And then when he gets to chapter, chapter 13, that's the week in which Jesus will go to the cross. And then the story just becomes very slow. And you know, sometimes in, in stories or in movies, uh, things like this happen. The story moves along, and then there is a specific moment for the character that is, that is very important, so they slow down the pace of the story and say, let me focus on this because this is going to be important. And that's what John does. And then from chapter 13 to chapter 17, he slows down, and then we have a series of conversations between Jesus and the disciples. Just before he is going to be betrayed by Judas and he is going to go to the cross. And it is in this, these conversations with the disciples that the second appearance of Hara uh, happens. So chapter 15, we are going to read from verses 1 to 11, although the whole block of text should be read from verse 1 to 17. But for, for our purpose, we are going to go until 11. And it's a very famous passage, by the way. So Jesus is talking to the disciples, and then he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, and the word clean here is the same for prune, so just so you know. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then here is our verse. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, the topic of full joy, Rich is going to address that later. So I'm going to focus on something very specific. So if you read the passage, you can see that there is a certain word that appears throughout the passage. Abide, 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 abide. And the word abide appears about 40 times in the Gospel of John. 
And out of those 40 times, 11 of them are only in this passage. So it's very clear that for John, with the whole idea of the vine and the branches, the concept of abiding in him is important. Now, if I was to divide this passage, I would say that verses 1 through 7, you have this whole... Well, 1 through 8, you have this whole uh, symbol of the vine and the branches. And the, we can say the two main characters in, in this passage is Jesus, who is the vine, and the church, who are the branches. And there is also an implicit character, which is God himself. In the first verse, he appears as the vine dresser. And in the second verse, he's the one that prunes the good branches and removes the bad ones. But then he becomes sort of, he, comes, he stays in the background on the rest of the, of the image of the, the vine and the branches. And on verse 8, he appears again by Jesus saying, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then verses 9 and 10 are very interesting because Jesus does a parallel between his relationship with God and our relationship with him. So if you look at verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So he makes a, a parallel of love. In the same way that God loves Jesus, Jesus loves us. And that's a very interesting thing to see, to think about how Jesus loves us. It's in the same way that God loves him. But Rich will deal with that. The second one, the second parallel that you see is in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So here you have these two images. You have the image of love and you have the image of obedience or keeping the commandments. And it is in this context that Jesus' joy appears. He says, if you do the same thing that I have, my joy that I have, you will have. So what is this joy that Jesus is experiencing here? It is the joy of knowing that the Father loves him and that he displays obedience by keeping the Father's commandments. So you have this deep relationship between love and obedience between Father and Son, which makes complete sense because if you love someone, you're willing to do something that will bring them pleasure. So, and later we will see how much of this love God displayed for Jesus. And so, so, you, so you have this idea of, God displays such love to Jesus, and Jesus, in turn, displays such obedience to God. And this relationship of love and obedience brings joy to Jesus. So Jesus' joy 
is to such an extent that it can transform a symbol of death, like the cross, into a symbol of hope and life. And his joy is so filled or, or perfect or, or rooted in this perfect love that God has for him and in his obedience for God. So his joy is displayed in this relationship with God as well as uh, having this effect of transforming death into life and hope and love. And then I went to the third moment where Hara appears along with Jesus. And it is still in the same uh, context of uh, Jesus' private conversations with the disciples. Still in John, after Jesus finishes teaching the disciples uh, everything that he needed to teach left because he understood that his hour had come. He then finishes chapter 16, and then he goes into chapter 17 with a prayer. And then he prays to God, which is something that we often don't think about. Because whenever we think about, okay, tell me a prayer of Jesus, and we automatically go to our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So we automatically go to Matthew 6. But... Here we have a very long prayer, actually. It's the whole chapter 17 is Jesus praying to God. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're only going to read the first four verses. And I'm going to mention one more where joy appears. So if you could open your Bibles to John 17, and we are going to start on verse 1. And here Jesus says, well, John says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, if you skip to verse 13, it's where we will see the joy appearing. And Jesus says, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So here you have Jesus' prayers. And... What I find interesting in, in this particular prayer is that Jesus' joy is set in the context of what he came to do. But not only what he came to do, he is looking at his life as not being something whole in itself, but as being part of God's grand plan of redemption. 
And by inserting him into the grand plan of redemption, he is able to experience full joy. So you have Jesus' joy displayed in three ways. You have his joy in the, in the context of God's grand plan of redemption being experienced by him in obedience to a God and a Father who deeply loves him, who will glorify him and give him the glory he once had in eternity past. And it is such a display of joy that he is able to not only endure the cross, but transform that symbol of death into a symbol of hope and love and life. And this reminded me of a, a story that I really enjoy. Usually I quote C.S. Lewis because I'm a big fan of his work, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to quote his friend, uh, Tolkien. So if you know, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, and most people know him because of The Lord of the Rings. And... And if you know the story, it's that whole struggle to try to destroy the ring of power. There is this dark lord that wants to destroy everything. And if you know Tolkien's literature a bit more, you know that there is a book that came before that one, which is The Hobbit, which is a particular story of how the little hobbit got the ring of power. And it has a whole story in itself. But if you really know Tolkien a bit more, you will know that he wrote a few other books in that same context. And one of those books is called The Silmarillion. Now, The Silmarillion, especially if you read the first chapter, it just blows my mind, and it's the one that I would like to quote. So in The Silmarillion, Tolkien talks about uh, how the world came into existence. And he talks about this being which he calls Iluvatar, which he calls the one, who is supposed to be like a representation of God. And he says, so uh, Iluvatar, he created the Ainur, who are the holy ones, who, which would be like a representation of like angels. And then he said, and he placed on them themes of music. And they started playing this music in perfect harmony. So, so Tolkien displays the creation as a perfect musical harmony, which for me as a musician, I was like, Yes, I love this. It was really great. And, that, and that's all in the first chapter. It's like four pages. So if you read those four pages, you get the whole picture. So he displays creation as being part of this harmonic or harmonious theme of music. And then he mentions later on that the... the the, the holy ones, or the Ainu, or the, the angels, they, they were very pleased at how wonderful and how harmonious the music was. And then he says, but they knew that there was still a bigger harmony to be sung that would be done by them and the children of the one after the end of days. So I'm like, talking really reads this stuff because he is doing all sorts of parallel to it. So he places creation in a, as this perfect musical harmony 
which is going to a grand harmony being done not only by the angels, but also by men and all of God's creation. And then in the middle of the, these two harmonies, he talks about Melchor, who is another holy one, like an angel, who wanted his melody, his specific melody, to be sung higher than the other, than the other ones. And what he does, he develops his own melody. And when he does this and he introduces his new melody, he places the whole harmony in chaos because his melody doesn't fit with the harmony of creation. And then some of the other angels, they begin to tune their melodies to Melkor. And then you have th this perfect harmony which goes into chaos. So the whole world of the Lord of the Rings appears in this context of chaos. And I think sometimes that's how we, how we view life and how we view our lives, that we are inserted into this chaos and we are hoping that God will somehow deliver us from the chaos and brings us into a moment of peace. And that is true. But what I would suggest for you is that for you to have the same perspective that Jesus had, that your story is not, doesn't start in chaos and go and become something good. Your story is part of a grand story that began perfectly, is immersed into chaos, but it's leading to something much more perfect. It starts with a garden, but ends with a big celestial city with a garden in the middle. And I think this perspective of Jesus is what brings him joy. So he sees his life as part of God's grand plan of redemption for creation, being expressed in his obedience to a father who deeply loves him and who will glorify him, experiencing this joy that can transform even a symbol of death into a symbol of hope and life. And that's what I was able to find out that Jesus' love is. Why don't we bow our heads? Father, I would like to thank you because your word is so profound to us. It, it, it makes us think about things that we never thought about Jesus experiencing joy. But it's not a joy that is seeked by a momentary pleasure or to fulfill momentary desires, but it's a, a joy that is experiencing by, by placing himself into your grand story, by obeying you, who is a father who loves us, who calls us friends. A joy that is able to look at the most unfortunate of circumstances, like the cross, and be able to see in that an element of joy and hope and love, not only for him, 
but for all of God's sons and daughters. So I ask you that you will give us this perspective as we live our lives, that we may understand that our story is also part of your grand plan, that we may live our lives with you in obedience to a Father who deeply loves us, and that we may look at all the struggles of life and understand that Jesus endured the most vile suffering that humanity could conceive and transform that into joy, love, hope, and salvation for us. Please remind us of that. In Jesus' name.